Good evening, Patriots, and it's the end of Thursday, April 13th in the year 2023. And I don't mind telling you, Thursdays when I get to the end, it's kind of nice. It's a busy day. Four shows in a day, and I'm telling you, I love every one of them, but it's tiring by the end of the day. And my butt gets tired because I sit in the chair for four hours. But that's okay. It could be worse. I could have to be sitting listening to Biden for four hours. In which case, I don't know what I'd do. It'd be pretty rough. All right, before we begin tonight, it's always this reminder that these people, these insidious fools, are trying to get to the money and to the food. And one thing to keep in mind is food planning, and we're going to talk some about this tonight too, is kind of a two-stage thing. You have to have food that's what you would call your emergency stack, recommended for about 90 days. So those, that's food that'll last for like 20 years and you just don't touch it. It's just there as your core. And that's something happens, you have to pick up and go, whatever that is. And then you've got your sustained amount of food, your, your sustainment stuff, which should be six months to a year worth of supplies. Some people go a lot longer. So right now in this time, when you're doing your assessments, make sure you've got that core 90 days. And that's where my Patriot Supply comes in. Patriots, anyone who thinks they won't need emergency food isn't paying attention. Every day, the headlines get worse and worse. Is the unthinkable next? It pays to prepare. That's why I seriously recommend you stock up on emergency food right now. You never know when the next shoe will drop, and when it does, emergency food will be hard to find. So get yours now while it's on sale. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and check out their popular three-month emergency food kit. Right now, you'll save $200 per kit. Each kit gives you a wide variety of delicious breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks, providing over 2,000 calories a day for optimum strength and energy. Act now and claim your $200 savings per kit. You'll sleep better knowing your family won't suffer if the worst ever happens. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and you'll enjoy free shipping too. MyPatriotSupply.com. Patriots, no time to waste. Sovereignty begins with food security. Check it out. MyPatriotSupply.com. And man does it. Sovereignty is based on food security. That's really where they're going after so much right now. I just listened to a piece a bit ago to understand a little bit about these corporate monsters that we're tied to. They control and have consolidated so much in the food industry. So Cargill is one of the main arbiters for beef in the nation. Now, what that is, is Tyson's one, Cargill's one, and then there's, I think there's two more. I could be wrong. But if you remember back in the fall when I went to Amarillo, Texas, and I stopped in and met with the guys that were building a new slaughterhouse. And they were doing so to give control back to the beef producers. So they had some say. Well, Cargill is one of these huge corporate conglomerates. They're actually in Kansas. And then you've got Tyson Foods. It's in Amarillo, actually. And these are massive like feed houses, and then they do these, it's just massive slaughter lines where they slaughter all the beef. But unlike what used to happen when I grew up, every grocery store had a butcher. And not today. 
because today you butchers order food, order beef pre-cut. So if you go into a store and you're like a regular, like a Kroger or an Albertsons, a Safeway, they may be able to do a little bit of refinement cutting for you, but the main cutting of the beef is done at the arbiters, and then it's shipped in in frozen boxes. So if you're going to get prime rib, and they know a market, for example, loves prime rib, then they can take prime rib from multiple animals and overstock one region with prime rib. And then maybe in China, and I'm not exaggerating about this, maybe in China they they like, well, just for the sake of talking, because I don't, this isn't data, I'm just making this up so you get the idea. Maybe in China they like the beef loin. And so they're going to package that up and send that to China. So they their beef is cut and then it's divvied up and it's a global operation. That's why when we talk about getting your meat locally at a butcher that does full animal slaughter and butchery, it's really important. So we have two of those in my county, which is amazing, quite frankly, that we have two. And then we have a actually, there's a new one that's opened up in South County. And then there's a, a part-time one in South County. We have Helios Farms, which is kind of their own farm, but they do do some butchery there in North County. And then by fall, probably late fall, we should have our own butchery set up not too far from kind of Central County where I live. So that's going to give an enormous amount of resources in the county where it's full animal butchery. But we still have the Kroger's, which here, here it's called Fred Meyer. We still have the Albertsons, the Safeway. We still have the Costco. We still have Walmart. And they they sell their meat, but it's all pre-butchered and, and it's all wrapped and so forth. Okay, so what I'm leading to is in a recent meeting at Cargill, which is one of the nation's largest arbiters, so they're, they're processing cattle and shipping out everything. They are now switching their facility over to grow, you heard me, to grow beef and shifting their animal slaughter operations to Africa. I'm telling you, patriots, one of the most important things we are coming to right now, and you're going to have to pay attention to what's going on in your food more and more. We are being forced into this lab-grown crap that they want us to eat, and they're forcing us into the bug entity. So you need to start sourcing out Local providers, if you can grow protein, do it. Chickens are probably the easiest animal to grow, You would, and that's eggs. Because you, once you get about an 18-week-old chicken, it will start laying eggs. And once you get that matured a bit more, they'll lay an egg a day. So if you are looking for a whole protein, egg is one of the perfect foods, literally, unlike what the medical industry tries to convince you of. It is literally one of the perfect foods. If you can get chickens and you can get 10 chickens, that's or 10 or 12 chickens, you're going to get 10 to 12 eggs a day. It's about every 25 hours. That's a tremendous amount of protein you can bring to your family in a relatively small space. Ducks are another one. Ducks have the advantage that they grow, their eggs are bigger, and the ducks grow a bit faster and are more, and are more of a dual-hatted animal, meaning you can have ducks for meat and eggs. There's varieties for that. Chickens tend to be 
more one or the other. You're going to grow a chicken for meat or you're going to grow a trick chicken for eggs. And I, I know that there's in-betweens, but that's more or less. When you talk to people raising chickens, they're either raising chickens for meat or they're raising chickens for eggs. And the ones that give eggs, mainly what you're doing is you're developing layers. Or you're, if you use them for meat, you're going to get chickens that are boilers, meaning you're boiling them or how you're cooking them. Stew chickens because the meat can get tough. So it, it's really important right now to be looking at sources of protein in your diet. This is a war of an unprecedented nature. I mean, we are looking at so many flanks being initiated at once. They're doing a blitzkrieg. They're trying to do another ambush. And they're trying to catch people off guard. And with each of these steps, they're trying to bring people into where they give up and say, okay, I don't care. I'm just going to go to their system. The one thing I, I think it's important in the perspective is where does our heart sit? There, there may be moments that we're in a place where we're compromised and may not even know it. Like you might pick up, for example, say you went to the bakery and you got a loaf of bread and you, you've eaten it and you, you're like, I cannot believe I just ate cricket protein in my bread. They're making cricket protein bread. So we do have to be vigilant. You got to be reading labels. You need to be Asking, that's where local's good. How are, what are they using for flour? What are they using for sources? We've talked a lot about the sourdough revolution, which I want to get into a little bit here again today. All of this is building skills and relationships in our community. Because where we are right now is this system is unraveling at a very rapid rate, faster than we realize, and people are starting to wake up. Now, this is a piece by the Young Turks. I can't stand the Young Turks just so we're clear. And there's a bunch of bleeps in here because she can't, the woman on the Young Turks, and I don't care her name, I can't stand her anyway. She's just a liberal whack job. But she can't ever say a sentence without dropping the F-bomb somewhere. That's just, she's just high, high maintenance, high stress, foul language, Satanist, whatever. I don't know if she's a Satanist, but that's just being liberal. I usually lump them into that category. But she's definitely not a follower of Christ. But why do I want to play it? It's I want you to hear this of a person who has been pushing for electric cars and the new green agenda. And you have to hear this to appreciate this. She's literally running headlong now into the realities of what it's going to take for her to be able to afford what she's been preaching about. So here we go. Take a listen. And this is what it looks like when you red pill yourself. They just ban the sale of any new gas powered cars or any new gas stoves. And so the technology that you have in your home, the gas stove that you have in your home, if it breaks, not only are you not able to buy a new one, but it gets increasingly more difficult to just repair it. You get what I'm saying? And so, like, I that's, get it, but look, that's a bump. That's the normal bumps in the road as you transition to things. I know, but Jake, like, don't minimize the financial burdens associated with these things, okay? Because, no, like, I am literally freaking the f out about the charging station thing. I'm like, it's gonna cost. We're gonna Did take they, out a massive loan to pay for it. We're not getting any help from the f government on that. I, did you? Did you guys ask? Is there any tax credits? <laughs> but seriously, seriously, there's no government help at all to Jake, transition. I don't you guys. Give a about tax credits. No, no, I'm saying for the HOA. Like, no, so I, there's been no talk of tax credits. I haven't seen anything about tax credits. I should look into it. Maybe there are tax credits, but I don't give a f about tax credits because you have to shell out cash. Okay? Like, I just, 
I want to do something in response to climate change. That is not my my issue here. My issue is how like we're forced to make all these changes that are a, a financial burden, a giant inconvenience with like little to no help. And the, the solution from the government in terms of like, no, no, you get you get financial benefits for doing this tax credits. No, I don't want I don't want the tax credits. I will give me the money. Give you give me the money. OK, don't tell me this about how I have to buy like some new thing because the government's forcing me to do it. And then like after I file my taxes, there's a certain portion of that purchase that might be tax deductible. Like, I can't, I I'm you, so sick of it. It's just like mm, like endless pressure, 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 pressure. I can't take it. Yeah, I hear you. And and we ask too much of the middle class. We ask too much of the average person. Oh, the person. middle class is the most group of people in this country. No, I hear you on all that. But at some point, we got to go to electric cars. We don't have a choice. Like the plant's burning, so we got to go to electric cars. So when California says, hey, let's go to electric cars by whatever the number is, 2025, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be tough. But, yeah, and when but at the same time, now prices are coming down, right? Okay, but Jake, let's not minimize the cost of like actually charging those cars, right? Because here's the, here's the other thing. So Gavin Newsom pushes for and succeeds in passing legislation in California that would ban the sale of electric cars at a, at a certain year. I think it is 2025, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe not. Maybe it's 2035. I don't remember the exact year. But eventually, pretty soon, you're no longer going to be able to buy a gas-powered car in California. Literally, like, that same month, Kevin Newsom's like, oh, there's a heat wave and our energy grid really can't handle it. And so I'm just going to ask you guys, if you have electric vehicles, please don't charge them right now. It's just. Ain't it delicious? <laughs> it is delicious. You see, and I'm leading to something by you hearing that. This is the reality that all of these people are starting to come to right now. That this wonderful world that they painted, it's always rules for thee, not for me. And they're now having to realize that, oh, wait a minute, I have to bear the cost. Now, this is an electric car topic. And it's right in their face because they have to make a decision. 2025, no more gas cars sold apparently in California, whatever. Until Californians finally have a revolution and oust that insurgency of a government, illegal occupied government they have that are, that are all run by lizard heads anyway. But there's this green movement that's been so vicious, and it's always like, hey, yeah, we have to go through the transition. She even hates the middle class. I've got news. She's part of the middle class. She's not part of an elite. She just thinks she is because she's part of an intellectual elite. So... Where we are right now is this awakening is starting to hit the pocketbooks of the liberal class. So we started out talking about me. What's that going to do? You're going to see the same thing. They're not going to be able to get meat. And at first, it's going to be all wonderful because they're going to get to have lab-grown meat and it's going to be safe for the environment and there's going to be low levels of, of, of methane because the cows aren't pooping and and squirting gas out their backside into the atmosphere, which apparently is causing the entire globe to warm up. No concern for China. And then what's going to happen is they're going to start going down to the store and having to face the cost of lab-grown meat and of bug protein. 
it's not going to be cheaper. Sustainable in their the way it's sold does not equate to lower cost because companies are not going to go out there and go, hey, you know, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to grow some lab meat, but don't worry about it. We'll take the hit on our bottom line for the first five years while you transition. Hell no. They're going to do a return on investment like as fast as they can because they know something else. Unless this fad sticks, there is no way that they're going to be able to recover their investment. So reinvestment is going to come out of that as quickly as possible. And as that happens, the place it's going to hit is the bottom line. Then wait until they discover that food costs in China and food costs in Africa and food costs in Europe and food costs in Russia are lower because they will be. Because they're not going to do what we're doing, which is trying to kill off our farmers. So all of this is part of an awakening that's going to be very unstabilizing and, and destabilizing for the entire nation. That comes back to the principle of our communities where we live. Someone like this, as hateful as she is, and she is, she's full of hate. And as much as I really can't stomach even listening to her, here's the reality. If she was in my neighborhood, I if I found out that even if she was a, probably is, a gluten-free nut, I'd make some gluten-free bread and give it to her. Not that I want her to be over for dinner, because I don't. But when the chips get down, people like this are dangerous. And it's easy to say, like, what's mine is mine, and you come to my door, I'm going to lay you out. But the problem is that this is happening on such a wide scale, and there's going to be so much destabilization. And the ways that they control the world, always, you control the food, you control the people, you control the fuel, you control a nation, you control the, the money, you control the world. Well, all three of those are in play right now. So let's go back to the sourdough revolution. Because there's so much richness in this. And there's so many people doing this, and it's awesome. I've been seeing pictures on Bards FM, uh, Telegram channel, The Family Room. Great. By the way, we have got some crazy good cooks, bakers. I mean it. I, I've baked a long time in my life. Years ago, I was baking two loaves of sourdough a week. I was in my 20s up until my, like, just, around the time I turned 30, 33, something like that. And I did that twice a week. And it, I don't bake that much anymore. So I'm kind of getting back into my rhythm, my routine of doing sourdough. A lot of you were way ahead of me because I've seen your pictures. But I've also, I, when I went to France two different times, I spent a lot of time at bakeries. I talked to bakers. I've studied baking a lot in my life. It's just a personal passion. And so big hat tips to so many of the people posting pictures of their sourdough. This is like professional level stuff coming out here. Awesome. So we're, we're making, we're seeing it happen. And it's important in the principle. I've, I read something the other day that somebody had done seven loaves and before they even got them done, their wife had taken seven loaves out to neighbors. I had another post the other day. It's like, 
Bards, I can't believe what you got me doing. I'm now baking sourdough bread, and my wife took one of the loaves before I could even taste it out to our neighbors. Again, it's a wonderful thing. And bread is one of those essentials of life. And as we pray into it, which we should be praying into everything, we're literally giving a blessing. So when we read about, I just want you to think about this parallel because it's really amazing. We're reading about how they're putting mRNA in food and they're trying to get us to eat blab-grown crap, that they're trying to get us to digest bugs. They're trying to make milk out of everything under the sun, plant-based milk. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that works. I don't know, like, plant-based milk. I didn't know they had teats to, to squeeze the milk out of, but I guess they figured that out. Maybe it's a special plant I don't know about. But anyway, they've got all these crazy, crazy milks that are coming out of here. And they're trying to get us all off of core proteins. Remember, like the Mayo Clinic was founded as a raw milk health clinic in the 1800s. Today, it's anything but, but that's how they started. And raw milk is, if you can get raw milk, it's fantastic for you. Is super healthy. You can keep. You can live off of raw milk alone. You can live off of honey alone. So there's so many things we can live off of. You can do a paleo diet of extreme. There's a new paleo study showing that people can live off of meat alone. Matter of fact, there's a testimony I was reading the other day. Someone just giving their case study of how they had joint aches and pains, and they cut out all carbs and they eat only meat protein now, and they're completely healthy. It depends on your body type. I'm not advocating any one way or the other. And remember, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't play a doctor on TV. I don't wear a white coat. I'm also not a financial advisor. So do your research. But these are things that I'm researching and finding. But here's what's interesting. They are trying to feed us garbage to make us weak. So we have to go back to the principles of blessing food and why it's so important. So let's begin with the baking of bread. As we bless that food to give, we're having them digest something that's been blessed by our prayers with Father. So look at the war then. As they try to get us to eat mRNA-ingested food poison in our food, it's in the beef. It's in the meat. They're trying to get it in all the meat. They're trying to get it in all everything. Our counteroffensive is, sure, we'll skip that. We'll grow our own food, and we will bless our bread that we share with our neighbor to give them something wholesome for their body. This is a spiritual war. Remember, technology is their evil creation. And I know that's going to make some people cringe because they're going to be like, not all technology is bad. At this point, anything coming from them is bad. That's just simple. We have to live with some of it. And it doesn't mean we can't use it for good. But when it comes from their hand, there's nothing good about it. So it's essential that we're really working in a process of blessing our food. We should, If you aren't doing this, you should pray over your plants, your starters. You should pray over your garden and, and ask for the blessings and declare it. I mean, declare that you're going to have a healthy garden. Bless your garden. Bless your starters. Bless your seeds. And then we get to the meal. I mean, why was, what is, and I'm not going to say this is the only reason, but one of the important principles of praying over and blessing the food was to literally cleanse the food spiritually so it would have no effect on us. 
So if you're not doing that on every meal, we should be. We're not in this war. There's a very tangible and visceral aspect to what our enemy is doing. And it's happening that way because our enemy has managed to use a lot of high speed, kind of out of reach, unimaginable type technologies that they're now setting to let everybody know what's happening. And because we have a lot of really negative programming, thanks to Hollywood, in our heads, and we have an amazing, amazing and empowered imagination, we tend to immediately go to the negative. We start to look at this as like, oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to overcome this. And that's the silly, that is literally the silly response. And it is the silly response because that means the enemy's won. It's given us doubt in our, and they've seeded doubt in so heavily that they've triggered doubt by virtue of just simply showing us a technology. Why would we be worried? No weapon forged against us shall succeed. And we have dominion over all evil. All we have to do is pray into this and strengthen ourselves and walk boldly in here and declare the authorities that we have. But they don't want us to know that. They don't want us to believe that. They want us to believe that they are mightier than our Father. And when we listen to someone like the Young Turks here, who's lost her flippin' mind. I mean, she she's a classic liberal PETA, which would be pain in the beep, right? And so she has, everything about her life is about me. Notice she says, like, give me the money. And give me the money. Well, you're not going to get it. She's not going to get it. The government's not going to give away cars. This transition is what they wanted, and this is exactly what they're going to get. And if there's ever been a truly a big gift from God, we've got it right there. It's there. But our, our obligation right now is not only to be present and active in our faith. Part of that present and active is to be working as hard as we can to fill the silos. And it doesn't get any easier. I was just sitting down and going over my schedule for the next 60 days. It's nuts. It's, it's literally nuts. And that takes me through Bard's Fest and what I have to get done. And then through the summer, there really isn't much time to sleep. And even then I'm squeezing every moment into the day. But that's the walk we take now. Because what we're actually doing is we're breaking from this Luciferian pendulum. She's in the middle of the Luciferian pendulum. She's swinging from the, I love my administration, I hate my administration. I love them because they're enforcing the green agenda. I hate them because they're making us feel it. I hate Trump, but wait a minute, I don't hate Trump enough to not cash his his COVID check, but I hate Trump, but I, I want the COVID check. I want the free money, but I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's just nonsense. They get trapped in these OODA loops. And it's harder sometimes to step away as someone sitting on the, we'll, we'll just say the conservative side, because the conservative things sound a little bit more like, ah, look at those fools. And then you get into that other part where you, and it's going to be like, well, Trump's going to fix it all for us. No, he's not. He's not going to fix it all for us. 
We are going to work with Father God. We are going to work with our love in Christ. We are going to walk in that space. And if there's going to be a restoration of this nation, it's going to be with Father. And who he uses is him. But he's using each of us that lean into him. But the idol worship has to go. And I and I mean this. And it's because the obsession of things that take us away from God and I and you know I hear this a lot. People go, yeah, but there's good in this. Yes, there is. There's good in sports. There's good in 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 politics. Sometimes there's even a good lawyer in a rare blue moon. There's once in a while you might actually find a public school teacher that you could actually say is a good teacher. That's getting harder to believe. But the point is that as a whole. How we approach people, do we approach them as, are they human or are they idols? And are we abdicating our responsibility to them to fix for what we fix our lives for us? She's wanting someone else to fix it for her. She asked for this. This is exactly what the left wanted. These liberals wanted a green agenda and they want everybody to drive electric cars because they believe that tomorrow the planet's going to burn up. I think the Young Turks don't believe it. I think they just lie for it because they probably get good kickbacks from the administration that's pushing the green agenda. They're probably on the influencer list for Biden's anyway. But they want people to believe that that's what they want. But she's gotten caught in the crossfire because reality bites. Imagine what's going to happen when she can't afford food and she has to make a choice between electrifying her, doing an electric charge on her car and eating. We've already seen some of this. And it's hit the lower end of the liberal class. It hasn't hit this upper middle yet. But it's coming. Especially as the economy is starting to continue its crunch. But we are in this place right now where we as a nation have to start making a real hard stand. We don't have to be vocal but we have to be action-driven. And that's what's literally going to make the difference. And as we become action-driven, the question is, how are we going to deal with this in our neighborhoods? Your neighbor can be your best friend or your worst enemy in the time of this. And it's easy to say, they're not coming next to me. I'm not giving them anything. And that's, that's a choice you can make. But look, I've walked the space of war, as others have. And that never pans out well. So in the plan of things, even if your neighbor is a flaming liberal, this would be the time to, to share a loaf of bread once in a while. Let them know that, yeah, you're basically what you're saying to them is, I don't agree with your politics. I don't have to agree with your politics. But as my neighbor, I want you to know I'm here. Now, there's no easy plan. I live in a neighborhood in town. The property's... 15 miles out of town, 20 miles out of town. But the, where I live in town, my house in town, we have a really good garden and we're really making some big improvements this year. So we have a year around garden with basically greenhouse tunnels or greenhouses on every bed. And then we'll be adding huge new water storage this year. And then we're adding chickens, probably not until fall. Okay. On the property, I've got cattle, I've got bees, and then there'll be 
meat birds added next year and probably a milking goat. So that's all coming, okay? The bees are coming in two weeks. The cattle are already there, and we're building a butchery. All right, got all that. But in my community here, Caddy Corner to me, there's a, a couple, it's a family, and she's from China, and they have chickens. She grows her own food. They're great relations. Our neighbor behind us, across the fence, he grows some food. And we have good relationships with those three and our neighbor next to us. He grows a little bit of food, but not enough. But anyway, he does know how to garden at least. But when we look at across our neighborhood, there's a ton of people that are literally living in la-la land. They just, they think, especially ones across the street, they think that the never-ending cornucopia of food comes from Domino's Pizza delivering every other night and from whatever else they decide to outsource on their food production. I don't even know if they cook a regular meal other than prepared foods. I have, I mean, I, what I see when they come in with groceries, it's like your classic expectation of everything is prepared in one way or another. So who knows what's in that food? So how do you deal with a neighborhood like that? Because we have a lot of people not awake. And the answer, again, to break that way is literally, in my opinion, sharing bread. And here's some thoughts to go with that. And these are thoughts I have not implemented yet, but there's some thoughts. Like give somebody a recipe of how to do sourdough when you, when you give them a sourdough and maybe write some scripture on it to bless them and their family and encourage them to do what you're doing by also starting being part of the sourdough revolution, to know and, and care for your neighbors. Maybe it'll be one in 10 that even listens to that. But we need to start influencing people to start looking in our inner circles and start getting used to coming by and saying hello. It, it has to happen. Because when we do that, and we start looking out for one another, it becomes a habit that people want to do more of. And ultimately, this is scriptural. Christ's fundamental statement is, love thy neighbor. So we can take what he's telling us is fundamentally, we that is one of our main tasks is to love thy neighbor. And from that, then we have our commissions of authorities and we have our commissions of our greater gifts. And while we work towards those, the most powerful thing we can be doing is building a friendly connection within our neighborhoods. There's a lot of people and we know it and it's, I'm not going to even put blame on it anymore because they've been comfortable. They've gone through, there's been a lot of trauma of this fear and people weren't prepared for it. A lot of people didn't pull out of it. They've taken the vax. They're now in various form, shape of that. Those that didn't take the vax, they're, they're still even timid to talk about it because they've been so ostracized by others. This is a golden opportunity to just put all that aside and share a loaf of bread. And as we do that, we start to open up opportunities when things get tough. I, I'm really encouraging this on many levels. And I, I'm. this can go, we had a great testimony the other day. 
a testimony of someone who literally went out with, and I, I learned later that it was their grandson, and they had done the, quote, sourdough revolution. And in the process of the sourdough revolution, they went with their grandson to give it to the neighbor. The neighbor wasn't there. And so they took the loaf with them, and the grandson identified a man in a wheelchair, and they gave it to him and gave him blessings. You know, I've, I've shared this story before. I mean, this thing can go as far and as big as we want, but it is, it is a simple way, a safe and simple way to open up the door to tr- some tremendous conversations with people. So as we look at this growing mass of homeless, that's yet another area. Th- let me under- explain to you what I'm looking at right now in a simple terms. From a counterinsurgency lens, which I've spent way too much of my life I shouldn't say it that way. I've spent a lot of my life involved in counterinsurgency assessment and analysis. And when we start looking at a radicalized class of people, it's not your brown shirt, crazy, weenie snipped transgenders. They're already activated and they're likely activated with the drugs and all this other nanotech and everything inside of them. And they're easily controlled by some sort of influence, probably 5G and other stuff. And I don't say any of that lightly. But when we look at our our communities, when things start to get tough, food gets more expensive, transportation gets more expensive, people can't start affording the basic things, people start freaking out. And they'll quickly turn into habits that you would never expect them to do, be out of desperation. People that are in desperate places, will do desperate things. And these controllers of the world know that and are counting on that. So in the fundamental way of preparing to nip that one in the tail and to try to minimize that counterswing, the principle of the sourdough revolution is to extend that hand to the neighbor and encourage them to do the same because that is a ripple effect of what that does. Not only is it a ripple effect of goodwill, but in the process of committing to, say, making sourdough once a week, you suddenly have to stock up on flour more. You have to start thinking differently if you want two loaves or if your children manage to eat every loaf coming out of the oven and you're still going to commit to giving to your neighbors, you're going to increase your production. All of these things require resources and different sort of headset planning. But now let's look at the homeless class because the homeless class right now are a easily radicalized class. The question is, what's going to happen when things get tough? So in Portland, I've told you this story before, but it's very relevant in this this discussion tonight. This goes back to about 2013, and I was doing a whole bunch of work in Portland as part of my contract with Asymmetric Warfare Group at Fort Meade. I was doing some analysis of, of... cities and potential radicalized classes. I was, this is all part of a mega cities project. I was doing work with, and when Occupy, what was Occupy Portland was there. I was liaisoning with the local PD to see what their methods were with negotiating and dealing with them. I was interacting with some of the Occupy stuff, really interesting. 
which is a whole nother story for another night. But I came into this realization that Portland had amassed its homelessness in one of the places they had allowed it and encouraged it to be was under the bridge near the Union train station, which is downtown right near the Pearl District, which was one of the more posh areas and new areas in Portland. And so if you go across Broadway, which is the bridge, and you go under the bridge of Broadway and you go about three blocks max, you end up right in the middle of what I call the white tablecloth Chianti eaters. Because these are the rich that like to sit out on the sidewalk and they like to, and and it's, it's not just rich, it's just people that want to live that lifestyle. They're sitting out, they like to go out in the evenings and sit on the white tablecloths and they like to drink the Chianti and have their Italian food and whatever else. Three blocks away, you have a huge homeless camp where people are trying to figure out where to poop. They're living in squalor. They're trying to stay warm and they're scrounging for food. So I met this Portland city official and I asked him, I said, what has caused you to do this? This is really not a good idea. And the naive liberal perspective is, well, we, we, we thought it was a good idea because we figured if we put the two classes of people close together, they'd get to start to understand each other better. I said, brother, you have no idea who I am. But myself and other people I work with, let me explain something. I would become your worst nightmare because I said, I can get those people radicalized, trained, and organized, and you're not going to have a friendly relationship in the Pearl District. You're going to have a raid and destruction of everything they are to steal what they have for the redistribution of wealth. And he really had no answer. He's like, he's like, I, I don't, I mean, we never thought about that. I'm like, I'm sure you didn't because your liberal values blind you. Now, why do I bring all this up? When, with what we're looking in our communities right now, and I'm in a, a town of 22,000 people, we have a state like every other blue state. Our county does an exceptional job of trying to manage the homeless here. It costs this county a lot of money. They mandatorily move the homeless at least once every week or two in their camps, so they, and they go in with dumpsters, they clean it all out, they sweep for drugs, and they always end up back there because they can't prevent them from being there. The state laws don't allow it. But that's still an increasing radicalized class of people because when they can't get anything... What do you think they're going to do? They're not going to just roll over and say, I'm starving. I'm going to die. This is primal that's going to kick in, primal instincts. And let me tell you, they're a heck of a lot more adept at dealing without and scavenging and taking what they need than probably 90% of the people in this entire community that I'm in. And I would say that's universal across the country. So just to point out a potential, I'm not saying it's going to suddenly happen. But if we start building an awareness in our communities of the need to share a loaf of bread, and that might include and hopefully would include the homeless, we're taking away an element of evil by sharing bread, blessed bread, by the way, 
and then it opens up the door for us to minister. Now, I've been making a point that when I see somebody that's in need, I just the other day I was going out to the property, a guy's got, he's over on the corner of the gas station. He has a sign, I need food. So I went into the Quick Mart, I bought him a bunch of food, some drinks, and I bought him some sanitary wipes because he was pretty much without it. And it's just the point of getting it to him and then asking, can I pray with you? And we prayed. I don't know how that ripples out. I know that the door is now opened for the Holy Spirit to do some work. And I know that in his life, because he was gone later, he was able to get food and it was enough if he, probably for two days of what I got him. As we start to do this more, and it doesn't have to be that you spend 50 bucks at the mini mart because that's a little ridiculous for what I got him, but it's what it, it was all that was available. But if we're going about a process of trying to really love thy neighbor, what we're doing here is we're stabilizing a culture, a culture that our enemy is working overtime to destabilize. And as they try to poison food to their benefit of their Lord of lies and their satanic crap that we have to deal with, we're also countering it with blessed food to heal the body and to awaken the spirit. Patriots, I believe in this because I've seen it work, not just here, but these are fundamentals of how you do an unconventional warfare campaign. One of the lead elements in a special forces teams is are they they're guys that go out and they do civil affairs. They do projects to bring food, to bring water, to bring basic supplies to people's lives. And that lead element to stabilize a culture before you've got your main team settling in is critical. So it's informational, it's life stabilizing, and then you bring in your experts in, you know, in unconventional warfare and they begin their work. We have two elements in our hands, every single one of us. You don't have to be an expert in unconventional warfare. All you have to do is be an expert in these words, love thy neighbor. And in doing that, each one of us has an informational war built in with us because it's scriptural. That's our information packet. You don't even need to know anything about information warfare other than to know the word of God, to speak it, to declare it, and to bring it into people's lives with prayer and blessing. And you don't have to be an expert in civil affairs because all you have to do is bake a loaf of bread, a sourdough revolution, and share a loaf with somebody. I know that we do about 1.5 million downloads a month on this channel. It probably translates to real audience size of about 550,000 regular active listeners that are trackable, that doesn't track other platforms, and it doesn't track people that just listen and don't download. So in rough estimate, there's 750,000 to a million people that listen to this channel. Now let that sink in a minute. If you have that many people literally every week making a commitment to baking a loaf of bread, blessing it, and sharing it with your neighbor in whatever form that takes, homeless or somebody that lives next to you, I don't care. And with that, adding something in there that says, here's a little card and say that comes with it that says, here's a scriptural blessing of this bread. Here's what. Here's the recipe for sourdough. I'd, we, I'm asking if you're interested, consider doing this as I do it to help thy neighbor. Encourage them to do the same thing. 
That's the foundations of a revolution. And it's radical in this day and age. It may not be heroic. It doesn't give you holding up the American flag and running up to the top of the hill as the muskets are firing and you've got your shirt being blown apart by the balls, the lead balls, and you're bleeding all over the place and you're carrying your sword and the guy on the horse is coming and you're attacking him and throwing him off to jump on top of the horse and ride to the top of the hill. Sorry. You don't get to have a Hollywood film on this one. But it is radical. It is revolutionary because it's awakening hearts in the Holy Spirit and it's opening up the door for kingdom to take back its, this land. Sourdough revolution. There's a lot of depth to it. When God put that on my heart, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I knew what this was going. And it speaks to my heart. It speaks to when Colonel P. Chambers was on last week. You heard him talk about it because he gets it. This is the core of unconventional warfare. This is our actual steps. You want to know tools to take this country back? It begins in your kitchen. It begins with a sourdough starter. It begins with making two bread loaves a week and sharing one with somebody. It takes that step and that commitment to sharing scripture, speaking the word of God in your information campaign, and bringing the civil affairs into the fight by sharing bread. And when we commit to that and we spread that, we're transforming the way we see each other, the way we live together, the way we trust each other, and we're doing it all under the framework of the words of Christ, love thy neighbor. Let's pray. Father God, we are really, really humbled tonight as we've reflected deeply on this gift that you've given us called the sourdough revolution. Father, we just pray that this will be inspiring for people to realize that this is the front line of the fight. Our enemy is sitting out here creating all these technological things, trying to produce poisons and influence agents of technological nature to try to overcome these perfect masterpieces of bodies that you created for us. We are born in your image, and we know that through the authorities that they can't even touch us. So, in the claiming of our authorities, Father, we ask for the blessing of excitement in the heart to get people realizing that this war is not won by big, glorious, strategic, massive movements of equipment and men. It's won by winning the hearts and the minds of one person at a time. Father, we just ask for your blessing tonight to inspire the hearts to engage in the sourdough revolution, to understand that it's far greater than making a loaf of bread. This is about sharing a blessing from heaven. This is fundamentally to feeding the thousands. This is about sharing something that we made with our hands that has been blessed by you, to bring the word to people's heart, to share with them a moment where bread is broken and we celebrate the love in Christ. And even if they say nothing and we simply pray with them and pray for them, it is still a blessed moment. So, Father, if we just pray that there's no major expectations here other than commitment. To commit once a week to baking two loaves of bread. One for the family and one for the neighbor. And in so doing, share a powerful experience of bringing the hearts and the minds closer to kingdom and to do this and to encourage it to spread, to pray on it, that it will spread. And we do pray that this will grow to be one of the most radical, most revolutionary moments and movements in our history 
as we retool, relearn, reclaim the foundations of living together in the body of Christ. Guide us, Father, in this time. Inspire us with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Simple acts win wars. Simple acts. Because it's the simple acts of magnitude that truly shake the hearts of people and wake them up. I can argue politics with a liberal all day long, and it will never go anywhere other than them being pissed off and me being frustrated that I had to talk to a doorknob. Politics aside, I can bring somebody a loaf of bread with that beautiful aroma of fresh baked, even when it may be warm out of the oven. And I can simply give it to them without any expectations other than to say, look, I've included a little piece of paper here. I'm going to bless you. And if you don't mind me, I pray for your family. I'm not asking them to take me into their home. I'm not asking them to accept Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in and does the amazing work. But we would be amazed at how few people have ever experienced an act of a giving heart. And I mean this. In this day and age, we've become so holed up in our prisons of our house, especially over the last three years, afraid to step out because the COVID's going to crawl up my leg and into my pant leg and into my nose and kill me. No, we have to break that mold. That's the job of the remnant. That's the job of disciples, to go where others are fearful to go, to bring people out of their fear into the love of kingdom. And the gift offering is that which is blessed by Father himself, a loaf of bread, so symbolic of everything that Christ is, about the body of Christ, about everything. And in, in doing so, just sharing our passion and our love, our caring for them, may I pray for your family. I've never, and you've heard me on this show, I have never had anybody tell me I can't pray for them. I always ask. But never have I been told by anybody, I can't pray for them. They may not be comfortable with what to say. They may have never had a prayer. But I do. Now, let me close with this one thing, just as a reminder about that. Robert David Steele, who is now dead, he was a CIA operative. And he was the one who exposed so much about pedophilia. Some people liked him. Some people hated him. Doesn't matter. I happened to meet Robert David Steele. Well, we connected by phone. I'll say it that way back in 2015. And we did this little kind of vetting handshake. He was he had worked for the same people, some of the same people that I had. So we understood each other, okay? Not too long before Robert David Steele died, he came on this show. And I guarantee you, and I look back on this as one of the greatest prayer moments on this show, he had never in his life had anybody pray for him. Because when I asked him, can I pray for you? Man, it was like an explosion of excitement. He's like, yeah, let's do this. I am so happy that I prayed for that man. I don't know what that did for him. But what I know is near the end of his life, Father led a prayer for him that hopefully guided him to the right place. So this is the point of loving thy neighbor. And when we look back on these things and we realize how the Holy Spirit works, 
we change lives through the acts of kindness that come from a giving heart. That's the core of what we're talking about here. And in so doing, we're letting the Holy Spirit have some room to work as we open that door. That's true standing and holding the line. That's defying evil in its face. That's being courageous where evil wants us to retract. That's stepping into the world with the power of the sword of the Spirit. And we do that, and I'm telling you, we do it one person at a time. We encourage others to grow, and this revolution changes the world. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow for bended knee. Until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. Dive into the deepest end. Oh, I want to feel something. Let me get back in my body. Oh